0: on this episode of the alt normal normal
1: i think one of the most potent emotional frequencies in dharma is your anger and injustice and so if you can crystallize that that's where change happens that's where you make the change And one thing I know for sure, there is not a movement on this planet that has not been born out of someone getting angry. There's gotta be the rage.
0: Another coronavirus vaccine has shown to be highly effective. Welcome to the Alt-Normal, an exploration of the diverse voices on planet Earth.
1: Joe Biden will become President of the United States
0: doing the critical work of rebuilding a healthier, more sustainable
1: alternative future. At the intersection of self, community, and the planet.
0: We live in uncertain times, powerful moment
1: of revolution.
0: How we choose to steer the path will determine what kind of alt-normal we consciously remake together.
1: Everyone has a part to play.
0: Let's rise
1: shift and support this exciting new reality in the making.
0: The Alt-Normal. Hi, I'm Tiffany Wen, the host of The Alt-Normal. This is a show that centers embodied integration as the absolutely critical force for rebuilding this post-pandemic world that's ever more sustainable, diverse, and inclusive. Culture needs a rebrand that goes deep at the core of who we are in the integration of our rich diversity, complexity, and emerging alternative paradigms. Let's be real. We are in a crisis of consciousness, realizing that the only way to change things out there is to first change things in here. The power structures and institutions can only take us so far. To see a world that's diverse and inclusive for all actually requires us to change from the inside out, shifting into actionable models of power with one another versus power over one another. Now more than ever, we need a new story for humanity that leans into the diversity of who we are and our emerging zones of genius to live more truthfully in how we relate to ourselves, our community, and the planet. So let's pick up those forgotten pieces of ourselves to rebrand our story of humanity from one of separation to one of integration. We're talking integration of the mind with the body, the scientific with the spiritual, strategy with emergence, and the individual with the collective. This show is produced by Resonance, the creative practice of Dig, Seed, Grow, a methodology that powers our core capabilities in branding and content creation. Our mission is to design resonance between brands and their most valuable audience to drive the greatest possible impact. After 20 plus years of working in New York City and Milan for Fortune 500 companies and marketing and advertising, we decided to take the big leap and make a fundamental shift how we work and bring brand stories to life. The Alt Normal is recorded at Destination Outpost, a co-living and co-working community based out in Bali. They have amazing spaces located in Ubud and Canggu that enable people to live and work from paradise, encouraging people to live differently so they can work from beautiful destinations and build strong connections with others on a similar path through life. That I would love to introduce our guest today, Nadine McNeil. Nadine McNeil is the founder of the Badasana series, Yoga with Weights. It's a Yoga Alliance certified program that builds physical strength, endurance, and stamina while respecting and adhering to the main tenets of yoga, primarily through breath and alignment awareness. She's been a longtime teacher at the Yoga Barn, the largest yoga and wellness facility in Southeast Asia, based here in Ubud Bali. So, her mission as a yoga teacher, speaker, wisdom mentor, and humanitarian is to ignite infinite possibility in people around the world and share yoga with diverse underserved communities. Prior to her deep dive into yoga in 2008, Nadine traveled the world in service of the UN, the UNICEF, Global Volunteer Network and Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons for nearly two decades. These and other experiences rooted Nadine's continued devotion to activism. Inspired by her first-hand encounters with both the resilience of the human spirit and also its suffering, Nadine's talks workshops, yoga sessions, women's circles, and retreats are continually described as powerful, moving, and insightful. As her women's circles continue to gain global traction, women from across the world who have sat with her in circle, including myself, have returned to their communities to offer this necessary and important work. Her mantra for this work is, when one of us suffers, we all suffer. Yet, when one of us heals, we all heal. Nadine, I am so happy to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you. So, I would love to start off on the topic of identity. So, on your website, you beautifully weave these words together. Jamaican by birth, universal by outlook. And in your latest Fab X talk... Uh, you you speak at length about where you came from and how your identity was shaped throughout a lifetime that really began after leaving Jamaica at 16. So I'm curious to hear more about your identity and how you really claim yours where you sit right now. Hmm.
1: Wow, that's a loaded question. What is identity? Um, I think identity is is a finite concept that allows us to find our place in the world. It's a starting point, as it were. And I'm very intentional when I say Jamaican by birth and universal in outlook, because the core, the essence of who I am is Jamaican, out of many one people, a land that so many people look up to. But what has shaped me has been my travel and the various places I've lived around the world. So when I say identity, identity for me is really experiences because it is my experiences that inform who I am and how I'm showing up and therefore my identity within the context of what you've just mentioned and also FabEx and in this world in which we now live is that the, the the danger of identity is that we make assumptions based on knowing a tiny bit of a story when there can be so much more and oftentimes is so much more to people. And if we think of, you know, this world that we live in through the lens of, of a telephone or a computer or social media, we identify purely on what we see. And there is so much that's happening that you can't see. I remember um a couple of years ago. In fact, it's funny because it was right here at Zest. I had been away from Bali for a few months. My father was very sick and then he subsequently died. And I had just come back to Bali and I ran into a woman in the restaurant and she goes, hi, how are you doing? It looks as if you've had a fabulous time away. And I said, well, yeah, my father just died, but outside of that, I'm good. And she didn't know where to put herself. And so you look at some pictures, yes, I might post a picture of being at the beach in Jamaica. I might post a picture with being with friends, but we take that single story and decide that my life is on top of the world. So, yeah. Mm. That's such a perfect segue, because you speak about
0: the danger of the single story and how the problem around identity is that we typically silo ourselves. And then we say, okay, that's who she is, that's who he is. And the story is therefore incomplete. It's it's based on assumptions and biases that we all naturally bring as humans. So if we could just go a little bit deeper into this single story danger, How have you really grappled with this and put this concept into your practice of engaging with difference and and, and engaging with those who are different than you?
1: Wow. So, you know, (laughs) Steve Jobs talks about connecting the dots. And if looking back at my life, everything up until this point makes perfect sense. Meaning, you know, when I look at the 20 odd years that I spent in the UN, traveling all over the place, working with people of various nationalities, that was my norm. It was normal for me to arrive at a social event and be the only black person. It was normal for me to sit in senior corporate meetings and be the only female, let alone the only black female. All of this became my norm. So... The, the danger of the single story, as we've spoken about, when we silo people into a particular pigeonhole, as I've said before, is that there's no room, there's no space for growth, opportunity, expansion, and to learn something else. And I'm probably getting ahead of myself. I'm sure you'll ask this, but that's the real opportunity of the time that we live in, because we've all had to relinquish our single stories. Whether your single story is around work, over-identification in what you do for a living, over-identification in where you live, in who you are, when all of these barriers are being broken away, who are you?
0: Yeah, there is a whole way in which we craft a story and we believe, ah, this is the story of me, but... What if we could tell our own stories the way we actually want to tell them? Yes. How do we even do that? So we'll get into that. I'm sure that's going to come through. Um, I would love for us to travel back in time to your UN days and solely kind of work our way to the present day. So you've mentioned somewhere that you've never thought that you would end up as a yoga teacher. In fact, you spent 22 years with the UN. Uh, doing emergency response, humanitarian stints in Sudan, Iraq, Kuwait. And then in 2004, you were a head logistics specialist in uh, for UNICEF in response to Indonesia's tsunami. 2005,
1: yeah. 2005.
0: So that does not sound to me like a job that's filled with much ease and much presence. So tell us, what really broke the camel's back and made you – transition, wake up, move forward with your life and enter this path called yoga?
1: Wow. So, and you've probably heard this on a few interviews, but I'm gonna slow it down because I love the way you've put that question. I have always been a physically active person as it were. So I was living in the Netherlands, started to get bored with the gym, A friend of mine recommended, I in fact went the reverse, I did Pilates and then yoga. And so along with the yoga came the breakup of an engagement, so a heartbreak. And it's around the same time that I also started to learn about women's work. Because being raised in Jamaica in a predominantly Christian family, in a largely patriarchal society, there was no real celebration of women. In fact, it was very much the contrary. You know, um, in order for you to get anywhere in the corporate world, you had to work twice as hard as the male. If you were black, you had to work three times as hard. So as you said, there was a lot of pressure being put on working hard. And so I had to prove myself through working hard. And even in the yoga world, I still carry that story in my subconscious. And it's one that I work hard to break. You know, that not everything needs to happen with you working and pushing yourself to the to the hilt, as it were. So I was actually here in Indonesia, uh, in Jakarta, doing an emergency response and basically had a meltdown my first experience with anxiety attacks, et cetera. I was in the middle of doing a response with my Australian male colleague who told me to calm down and get over myself. And then I remember returning to Jakarta and being sent to a million doctors. And eventually I met this wonderful doctor who I still speak of to this day, Richard Tomlins. And he said to me, when was the last time you had a holiday? And I couldn't tell him. Um, And he says, I'd like you to take three weeks, go to Bali and do absolutely nothing, and then come back and see me. So I bought a one-way ticket to Bali. I'd never bought a one-way ticket in my life. And I spent two weeks here um, with a teacher I'd kind of met abstractly, this guy Dave. And I basically did pranayama and cried for like two weeks with a bit of yoga, and it would have been just after a Bali bombing, which is really ironic, because what we're experiencing now as Bali is kind of what it was like. There was no one here. So we would go to Indus, and at the back, which has an epic view of the ridge, and he would teach me yoga. It would be just me and him, and then we'd do some pranayama, some breath work, some asana, And um, when I went back to Jakarta after that, my vitals had stabilized. And I remember the doctor saying to me, you might not be so lucky the next time. And so I just, you know, continued to deepen in the practice of yoga. And by 2008, I think it was, um, I decided I wanted to learn more about this thing that was having an impact on my life. And what was funny was everything I researched kept taking me to a teacher training. And that has only started to shift now, and I'll come back to that. And anyway, so I ended up at the Shivananda Ashram in India. And when I completed the training, I remember the Swami saying to me, you must begin to teach immediately. And I actually looked behind me because I had no idea who he was speaking to. And so... I returned to Jamaica, the studio that I used to practice there. I asked if I could come in and teach. I did. And then, you know, I just integrated the teaching wherever I went. And then it got to a point where I had to make a choice. You know, was I going to stay within the yoga world or step completely uh, the reverse, stay in the UN world or immerse myself completely in the yoga world? And so I chose to do that, you know, why a million different reasons, um, but I've certainly seen the impact that it has had on my life, uh, the potential that it holds for the world, especially now. And um, yeah. You do a lot of things,
0: everything from wisdom mentoring to transformational coaching, to teaching yoga classes, um, speaking, everything. And you say that your work is really rooted in two passionate objectives, consciousness rising, and your own personal quest for the democratization of yoga. I love those words together. The democratization of yoga, which you say is the removal of the illusion of elitism attached to the practice in modern times. I would love for you to talk us through what is this illusion of elitism that you see in...
1: Well, I don't even know if it's, if it's an illusion, really. I mean, the reality is that in the Western world, North America, Europe, the worlds that you and I are familiar with, Yoga has been largely accessible to a particular demographic, both educationally and otherwise, which has caused some degree of flack, as we know. And so my intention when I started to practice was, how can I share this tool with people who may otherwise not have exposure to it? I remember working with an outfit in Jamaica called Rock Tower, headed up by a dear friend of mine, Melinda Brown, an Australian woman. And basically, she took an artist residency into an inner city community in Jamaica. And so I would go in and I would teach these, you know, single mothers. I would teach what we call in Jamaica, ghetto youth, people that, you know, might not know how to read and write, the don men, the gangsters, and they'd love it. They would look forward to it because it was the one time that they got a little bit of peace and respite in their own lives. I remember going into Haiti following that earthquake, offering yoga in the communities there amidst amidst the rubble. Central African Republic, the same thing, you know? And so these are people who just wouldn't have exposure to it otherwise. And so I know there's, I haven't paid much attention, frankly. To the current story. Apparently, there's something happening in the yoga world at the moment. But one of the things that I do feel, um, particularly being of African descent, being Jamaican, being a black woman, is that there is a karmic responsibility. I have to show up and do the work because I. It, the only thing that has perhaps separated me from someone else is an opportunity. You know, so... It 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 identification. It's like when we hear this word privilege, white privilege, and I go, well, when did we decide to racialize privilege? Where does that come from? I'm privileged. I'm privileged. I went to great schools. I've traveled the world. You know, I've dined with the best. At all of the things that we use to to identify success, I've enjoyed. So why am I not privileged? And so for me, and Brene Brown talks about this. Privilege is really that you do something with what you have. You sitting down and telling me, oh, I'm privileged is crap. Privilege means that you need to get up and do something about something because you have the voice and the resources that others don't. That's so interesting you
0: say that. Um, I was going to speak about this later, but there's a racial reconciliation circle that Swati Martin holds every week. God bless you, Swati, these are awesome. And I watched the recording recently that Russell Simmons facilitated a talk, and he's a yogi himself. And he said that as a yogi, he always tries to figure out how to become useful. When you become useful, that is a path to happiness. And I love that. Those aren't often words that you hear, you know, in a traditional yoga space, at least the ones that I've been in. And, you know, when we think about, you know, the place of yoga in modern times, it's a really fruitful conversation. And I was reading recently in a Wanderlust article, I think it's a little old, but it was titled Radical Diversity, Setting a Yoga Standard for Equity. And the writer goes to say that even though, of course, at least in the US, I'm sure this is worldwide, that yoga teachers are disproportionately white, and perhaps privileged, you know, um, if we're going to at least color it a little bit, but she's optimistic about the yoga world's trajectory to create spaces where people feel included and every culture can benefit from yoga should they wish to practice. You know, and I'm, I'm getting really real here. It wasn't until um, coming to your class, and I've been practicing yoga since 2010, so 10 years, it wasn't until I came to your class that it was my first time being led by a Black teacher you know, that that's insane. And I'm from New York and all the yoga (laughs) classes I went to were taught by white women, you know, not even really a few men. So, you know, and soul power was amazing. And it really, it really weighed on me. Like, how is that even possible? So I guess where I'm trying to go with this is yoga is an incredible practice. Can the yoga world do better in this moment where, you know, in this moment of COVID where, you know, equality is being questioned, where these spaces that are meant to really serve people to come to peace with themselves, is, is that being fulfilled in the best way from where you
1: sit? Mm, wow, so much in that question, even before COVID, even before Black Lives Matter, even before Me Too, when i was in that ashram in india in 2008 and i witnessed a bunch of israeli men and a bunch of iranian women eventually come together in a conversation that was where i saw the real power of yoga because up until that point i'd been in the u.n for what 22 years and i had not seen that resolve happen in any meeting in the united nations and it was in that instant that I recognized, okay, this tool is a real, this gift, this ancient practice is a really powerful one. One of the things that sometimes gets, I don't want to say it's forgotten, it's not in the forefront of consciousness, is that the practice of yoga originated out of people of color, be it India, be it Africa, wherever you choose to put it. But that's the origin and source of yoga. Yoga arrives in the North, it arrives in, in, in the United States and it gets pasteurized, for lack of a better word, so that it becomes more palatable to the general community. And if we look at how we're educated, the people that are going to be drawn to it are fairly educated, are able to think outside of the box, are able, they're creative, they're a little bit eclectic, they're a bit edgy, as it were. So then it starts to ripple down. You have the Hollywood effect, which is always huge in in, in America and across the world. Do I think the yoga world has a responsibility or a duty? Absolutely. And I've said this before, all of this, because the yoga community or environment or shala or studio or whatever you want to call it, is the one place that ought to be a safe place for you to express yourself. The mat becomes the mirror. There is no hiding on that mat. So if the yoga community is unable to hold that space, then who can? We say that yoga is to yoke, to unite, to include. So we ought to be able to have these conversations. However, we're also human and we're products of our environment. I remember going to, I think it was called, power to the people or yoga to the people in New York City, right? Upstairs in a building where you could hardly take your clothes off, right? Now, you cram people in there. They've rushed from rush hour to get to yoga. They're fighting in the... Well, not fighting, but, you know, rustling in the change room so that they can get their mat. They go through this practice, om shanti shanti, and then they're out the door. It's like, seriously? What the hell has happened here? You know? And so there's also some compassion that we need to have for the practice because we're doing the best we can based on what we know. Now, here we are in 2020 when we have a real opportunity to do something different. You know, I've read the articles throughout, and you've just said it, my goodness, for you to live in a place like New York and I'd be the first teacher of color, it's kind of wild. It's kind of weird. It, you know, it's and, and when I think of it over Since I've been in the business and industry of yoga, which is different to the practice of yoga, I've seen the numbers increase. Sarah Clark, dear friend of mine, I remember when Sarah started her YTT at Kripalu, Leslie Salmon Jones, Afro Flow Yoga, Jocelyn Gordon, who used to be here, Hoop yogini. Diane Bondy in Canada, Ebony Smith um, in Texas, what's her name, Um, Faith Hunter faith hunter um spiritually fly um what's her name ava ava taylor who started yama talent one of the few yoga talent management companies in the world so so the numbers have been it's been growing but it's been growing slowly You know, what's his name? Andrew Seeley, Russell Simmons. I mean, there are people, but it it has grown. It it has grown in a disproportionate fashion is is the point. But I really think the yoga world does have something to do. You know, I remember speaking with Megan Pappenheim um, from Yoga Barn at the start of this pandemic and Black Lives Matter. And, you know, she's a New Yorker. New New York runs in both our blood. She's been to the UN school. um, You know, she's a force to be reckoned with. She's married to a Balinese man and she's saying, I just don't know in this time I roll out a mat and and go blah, 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 and then roll up that mat and go home. What the hell are we doing? So to me, as both teachers and practitioners showing up, what are we practicing and why? And if we're not prepared to get uncomfortable and make the change, we might as well be in a bar with all due respect. Mm. Yeah, that's where I'm at on the whole yoga thing.
0: Yeah, yeah. that's it's really the, the question of how can yoga begin the moment we roll up that mat and the moment we walk out that door and face real life and face our lives, right? And we're, we're going to get into that. I want to segue a little bit into the role of yoga and spirituality and activism. This is a popular topic that Kyoto Williams talks about. I know you're a fan of her. I'm also a fan of her. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with Kyoto, um, she's a total warrior woman, man. She is an esteemed Zen priest. She's the second woman, Black woman or just woman, ever recognized in the Japanese Zen lineage. And she's also an acclaimed author of the book Radical Dharma and Being Black, Zen in the Art of Living with Fearlessness and Grace. So these two words, radical and dharma, are typically not strung together. At least I haven't really seen these two words strung together. Because oftentimes, and I'm saying this as a yogi myself, we think of spirituality as a space of love, light, and Aum without real action, right? Towards resolving real injustice and conflict in the world and confronting our own discomforts. I'll be the first to say that I'm guilty of this myself, but... You know, it's a process of really becoming more aware and taking those steps. So from where you sit, right, does spiritual practice in yoga require that we love everyone and sort of embody peace when we look around and the world is up in flames? To love everyone, especially people who play out or perpetuate oppression and like real divide and separation in society. I know that's a big one, Nadine. We can can slowly go through it together. This is about learning
1: together. (laughs) Well, for the record, I'm not a love and light advocate. Anyone that knows me knows that. I think one of the most potent emotional frequencies in Dharma is your anger and injustice. And so if you can crystallize that, that's where change happens. That's where you make the change. And one thing I know for sure, there is not a movement on this planet that has not been born out of someone getting angry. There's got to be the rage. The rage is the fire. It's what ignites and moves things so that they become transformed. Now we have different people doing different things along the way. All of us cannot be sitting down going om Shanti Shanti, and all of us cannot be out there going power to the people. So yet, we need each other along the way. Um, I love the term radical dharma, because that's you ignited in your purpose. You know? Because you need to have that, that fire, that passion, that root chakra ignition that propels you into action. And so, one of the things that infuriates me, it's like when people say to me, I don't see color and this discussion about race. And it's like, seriously? We wouldn't be having this discussion if it isn't there. So let us acknowledge that and then let us see how we can hear each other, seek to understand rather than to be understood, to hold that space to be a witness so that we can then have the transformation. We are not all equal, we're different. And where where life gets really beautiful is when I see your beauty and you see mine. But if we go, oh, we're all the same, ridiculous, we're not. We're not, we're, just, we're not all the same energetically, we're not made up the same in terms of sell your dharma and my dharma. It might be the same purpose, but how you produce that and how you bring that to the world, and how I bring it to the world is going to be different. And it's in the marriage of that. This is what we're doing right now. You couldn't ask me the questions you're asking me if you weren't doing your own work. Mm -hmm. And so you wouldn't be able to receive what I'm saying. You know, so it's a dance. And and I think, um, for me, that's the beauty of of the radical dharma and of the truth. And I think, again, the danger in this so-called yoga world is is this love and light. Yes, let's get to love and light, but let us also address our wounds. And I'm not required to love everyone. I'm required to be in a place of love. And no matter what I'm doing and what the circumstance that I'm facing, the question I ask myself is, what is the most loving action I can take in this moment? But I don't have to love everyone.
0: Wow. That really makes me think of what Kyoto said in her TED Talk, where she said, I don't want your love. I want your justice. Amen. For the people of different ethnicities, cultures, and countries. And what you just described of like, you know, love is an energy. It's where we come from, right? It's so pure. However, if we really truly want to do our part to show up for other humans, to be a human rights first human, then we need to want to be curious. We need to have the courage and the curiosity to understand. And for me, sometimes words like justice can be very big, right? But justice is just meeting someone where they're at without judgments and trying to understand who they're about without projecting, you know? And so I loved, at first when I heard that, I, I, I don't want your love, I want your justice. Like, I really had to sit with that because if that's not something that you hear every day, it can be confronting. Right. So anyways, I just wanted to mirror that. And yeah, to just understand that you don't have to love everyone, but you can be in love with yourself in order to show up.
1: So oh, you have to be in love with yourself. It has to start with self, you know, Um and, and again, that's another one that gets tossed around in this new age world. What do we really mean about self-love? And it's just embracing the totality of who we are, especially our imperfections. And so when we are t- loving ourselves, we set healthier boundaries for ourselves. Um, it impacts how we show up in the world, it impacts what we want to put our energies behind. It impacts everything from how we eat, powered by plants, to who we go to bed with, to how we make our money, really. You know, so any sort of work that we're doing, it has to start with the self. And and doing that self work, and this is the real, it's 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 the gift and sometimes the missed opportunity in the yoga world. We come to that map to remember, to reconnect to source, to harness ourselves so that we can show up and be better people. That's ultimately why we're there. You might get a cute butt in the process, but that's not what it's about.
0: Right. Um, and just on the theme of really applying yoga and action, I would love to center us on, right, the Black Lives Matter movement and what happened, um, you know, with George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, all of these injustices that have been exploding at this particular moment in time when I think there's a collective existentialism happening and people are just seeing reality with a new lens, right? And you held a woman's circle. This, I think, was a week after the murder. And I attended. And I just want to say, like, on the record, that was a really important moment for me. It really helped me move more into the space that I'm in now. So thank you for that. Oh,
1: you're welcome. Thank you.
0: (laughs) And, um, yeah, I, with everything that we're talking about in terms of how to really go inside ourselves and maybe get a little bit uncomfortable in order to be with whatever is, Can you kind of immerse us into your world a little bit more and how you personally transform rage or any of these emotions that are very overwhelming into the experience of grace, compassion, um, all these other tenets that we, we hold dear to us in yoga? Like how do you do that transformation work within yourself?
1: hmm some days are better than others (laughs) (laughs) you know Tiffany what has really and truly supported me are my practices especially in those moments where I felt like I don't want to do this in these moments where I wonder am I wasting my time nothing seems to be shifting what am I doing and I just keep showing up to those practices anyway the prayer the meditation, and moving my body in any which way. It's the only thing I know how, and it has, by the grace of God, it has supported me to where we are now. And I think it's so important, it's vital, again, the opportunity of the time that we're living in, you know, that um, we anchor in those practices. You may have seen that post I did following um George Floyd and before, let me back up a little bit. What what, what Black Lives Matter is, has highlighted is nothing new to me. What Black Lives Matter did for me was it actually gave me an opportunity to speak out about things I had been afraid to speak about. What Black Lives Matter did for me was that it was deeply validating. So I knew I had a voice, I now knew I was not crazy, that this shit was actually happening. And so I decided to well, let it rip. And so, and I know that people listen to me, so I decided to come to the to, to the platform and speak about it. And in that space, like my dear sister Swadi, I have been able to hold space on both sides of the equation because I've lived on both sides of the equation. I, you know, I've spent a lifetime calling out racial inequity whenever it happens to me. It happened, in fact, just last week or a couple of days ago in, in, um, at the beach walk I was with a friend of mine I won't take up our time with that but what was really interesting for me in that moment being typical being in a shop um, security kind of scoping me asking me questions yet saying nothing to my Australian friend and then when I confronted him he got really uncomfortable and then when I tried to share it with my friend she made a joke out of it which then invalidates and silences my experience Three years ago, I might have been upset. I record. I know her response is not personal because she's one of my dear friends. Now, I tell that story to someone who's black; they get the scenario immediately. I tell the story to someone who's not black, and I have to explain it a little bit more. So it's the conditioning, the stereotypes. The the the, the um. There's a word deconstructing these these limitations that we've lived through. So I called him on it, you know. So um. I don't know if I'm in a point so much as of rage anymore because I've seen it for so long. It's just calling it where it is. And one of the things I would say is that, again, as I mentioned earlier, there's a place for the rage, but you can't shift anything if you're consumed by rage. That's the art of war. That's the spiritual warfare. That's why we do these practices so that we can process what is happening within us. Um, We can understand what it is. We can heal our own story so that we can then show up and do the work. Are
0: you familiar with Resma Momenicum, by chance?
1: Yes. Um, My
0: Grandmother's Hands. Yes. Racialized Trauma and the Pathway to Mending the Mind and Heart.
1: Yes. In fact, um, in the early part of this, someone recommended his work to me. I love his Doc Martens and his sense of style. That's a wicked sense of style. And I watched a couple of his... Um, videos in the early days and i think such a beautiful book because then he, the title pardon me of the book because in that title alone he tells so much the work that we're doing part of why i do what i do is not just about me you know it's the lineage that that my um ancestors weren't able to heal i haven't had children so the book kind of stops with me you know what is the legacy that i want to live behind i mean if, if in 20, whenever, whenever I check out of this plane, we're still having this discussion, have I really done my work? I don't know.
0: Yeah, there's so much there. I feel like we could just spend a lifetime talking about this, and you know, I, I bring him up because what really wow, just captivated me right away. I heard him on a podcast, was he said, "White supremacy does not land in the body. It's intellectual." white body supremacy must be healed by going into our nervous systems. For me, that was like a total revolution. Whoa, you can actually look at racism inside the body and do the work there? What a concept.
1: But you would have to. You would have to. And this is the thing where, um, who I adore, Bessel van der Kolk, The Body Keeps the Score. When we talk about trauma and I mean, it's such an intricate thing, which is why the oversimplification of it is so dangerous. When that security guard came to me and asked me, could he help me? I went flashbacks of having this happen to me in Bloomingdale's in New York, in Harvey Nicks in London, to all it's like, and because I'm hypersensitive to it. I immediately felt it, you know. So you have the re-traumatization. It's the same thing with the Me Too movement. You know, we bring this movement out there. All of the women, God bless us, who have had some kind of abuse, we're re-traumatized and now we're left out there to hang out and dry with no way to sort of pull that back in so that we can continue with our lives. Because it's not just our story that we're carrying. It's the trauma of the lineage and so you have to heal that trauma within it's um funny you talk about um white body and it landing in the body oftentimes i did i think it was even on um fabrics mm-hmm. when i say to people that my first over rec- recollection of racism happened in my 20s they're in disbelief growing up in jamaica discrimination was not as overt as that. It wasn't skin color. It was whether or not you came from uptown or downtown or which high school you went to or who your parents were. There were all of these nuances rooted in colonialism. And I remember a dear friend of mine teaching me this in Jamaica. He says, look, most of us in Jamaica, we go to America, we finish high school, we go to America for higher education. So we're probably going there somewhere between the ages of 16 and 18. This is when we, many of us are first encountering racism. So our formative years, from seven up until that point, we have been brought up with confidence, etc. And then now you meet this thing, and you go, "What?" Unlike in America, and this can sound like a gross overstatement, but the average black child in America is taught from the minute they can hear, "You got to be careful, especially if he's a boy. Don't fuck, don't mess with the police." Do this, do this, do So that's drummed into your system from that age. So you grow up carrying that chip. So, you know, for you to unlearn that, it's extraordinary. For sure. And also what you were talking
0: about with what happened to you at the store in Kuta, that microaggression, like trauma is not just one big accident or one big freak accident. Trauma is many different things
1: accumulated over time. Thank you. And... Not only is it accumulated over time, trauma is not a linear sequence of events. It's me looking out that window and it's overcast and I remember a day or a smell or a song or a color, you know. And so you don't know when this is going to show up where, yeah. For sure. And
0: it's so foundational. It's so ingrained at a cellular level. It comes from our ancestors. I mean, for God's sake, like epigenetics is the science of how genes get passed from one generation to the next and how that can be shaped by the traumatic incidences that our ancestors went through. And that that gets passed down to us. So we carry things that aren't even ours. Exactly. It's just because of the bodies that we happen to inhabit. Exactly. And so you're right. Like, Resmaa Medicum talks about this in the book, that if we can't really look at the foundational trauma, you know,
1: Exactly. We have no
0: real chance of, like, real root cause healing. Exactly. That's always going to be there.
1: Um, and something you said earlier on that I just want to touch on, it's not, none of what we are experiencing is new. What we have now is time. We didn't have the time before. You know, we're locked up in our houses, looking at our televisions with nowhere to go, and going, seriously? What the hell is happening? Um, One of the things I've said, you know, as um, this era that we're living in sort of dropped in, I really thought humanity was in a better place. I was stunned to see where we are as human beings, you know, and um, that's kind of heartbreaking at a level, but it's also the opportunity. As you said at the opening of All Normal, what a time. We can actually shift things. Mm.
0: I think as a culture, we're moving from, it needs to be fixed out there to it needs to be fixed in here. The out there is out of your control. The in here is what gets you eventually to out there, right? And however you want to go in there whether that's yoga, whether that's prayer, whether that's running, whether that's showing up at a book club and you feel totally awkward and uneducated but you're still there, right? It's it's really a time of just leaning more into those discomforts. So, we could just continue talking about this for hours, but I'd like to shift a little bit um, into the conversation between spirituality and money. So, this is a topic that honestly never gets old for me personally. And I see this with people in the spiritual communities. This is never a topic that gets old. So, people in the world of spirituality and service inherently want to contribute, right? Not all of them, but like, I can't make an overgeneralization, but like generally the heart is I want to contribute in some way. Yet when it comes to money, there seems to be some kind of scarcity mindset playing out. This, you know, habit of undercharging, overgiving, being less in relationship to your sense of abundance and self-worth. So, I went through one of your blog posts and I just wanted to take out a little clip and maybe start from there. So you were talking about, you know, COVID and how your world as a yoga teacher started to shift as a result of COVID. You said, as a yoga teacher, my primary source of regular income taking my classes online was a seamless transition. Initially, enthusiasm from both students and me was high, part of the natural world to survive. That as the weeks rolled on, however, interest on both sides started to dwindle. This meant that I had to call on my keen, intuitive, and observation skills to discern how I could best serve others. So fast forward to present day, you know, you've manifested so many opportunities, so many different connections and partnerships with people. And I would just love for you to share with us what you've learned in this time, as a result of leaning into your practice, into your intuition, and how that's guided you to maybe shift your relationship to what abundance is, what money is, monetarily or otherwise.
1: Hmm. Another big question. Um, What I have learned is that in order for me to continue to do the work that I have to offer, uh that and it's not even about the work it's a, it's service it's a calling is that the work has to be re- remunerated in a way that allows the work to expand i can only do so much based on this one mere mortal self and so for me abundance has shifted or is transforming into being unapologetic um i think that Particularly for women, the discussion around money, let's just call it like it is, let's take abundance, prosperity, all of these pretty words out of the picture and call it like Mm. it is, is not a comfortable conversation. Mm. Um, Women have an emotional, there's a word I'm looking for, circuitry around money that men don't necessarily have. It's a, that, that circuitry that we run with money. We don't have any money. We beat ourselves up. You know, am I in this relationship? And it goes, it, it goes back to an old, old programming. If we look at, you know, the Institute of Marriage, the Institute of Marriage is really a business arrangement that was set up to, to make sure that the children are taken care of. At the same time, I remember having a conversation with a dear male friend of mine about this. There are certain things that women we're not meant to take care of. The man is the hunter and the gatherer. We are the nurturer. We take care. What has happened in our society, and this is where this is a real fertile ground for unlearning and relearning is, you have this ultra independence of women, which for me is actually a trauma response to repeated abandonment, betrayal, etc. I don't need a man. Screw you. I'm going to take care of myself. So let me go ahead and do this, which then emasculates the man. So we're not allowing our men to be men. I think I see a lot of that here in the wood. And the, the whole thing has just become one cluster expletive, you know, so. I think where we're doing service work, where we're doing work that's impacting people's lives, that's making a lasting shift, that work needs to be compensated respectfully. If you go to the doctor, a conventional medical doctor, you're not going to argue with the doctor about his fees. So why would you then come to a circle that I'm hosting or um, one of my programs that I'm running and then want to bargain with me and then tell me months later that the program changed your life. It's kind of crazy. It's kind of crazy, you know? Mm. And so as one of um, my coaches says, you know, essentially money allows us to have better memories. And as I said to you earlier on, I am now convinced there's another dynamic that's coming in that is not the currency of money. Something else is shifting. Because the other thing that has happened, I feel like I'm going all over the place, so I hope I'm making sense. Because we've been programmed to value our worth based on money, when I come from a six-figure salary to $100 a month, that messes with my psyche. Mm. Am I not worthy? Then you see these posts and I'm proud of all of them. You know, you see these um, various new age coaches, etc. Oh, I made seven figures sitting on the beach in wherever. It's like, seriously? You know, there are some people out here that are busting our posteriors. If you did that and you really mean to make a difference, then share that. But it, it, And so again, we come back to the single story. Because here am I looking at this post on social media, seeing you in Uluwatu having, you know, your green juice and telling me that all you've done is sat down for six months and made seven figures. And I have judged you. Based on my story, and what's my story? i got to work hard. i got to be pushing all through. So I'm doing all of this work. How is that work being equated on the basis of money? So here it is, I'm going, well, if I'm only getting $100 a month, and my work can't be worth shit. You see the vicious circle? Mm. So it really is. It's, it's a thing. It really is. And so if we're not anchored in ourselves, we can spiral out of control. This time for me personally has really been a gift because my very survival has depended on it. So a lot of things, you know, you spend 20 odd years in the UN, you become a diplomat. I can, t- I can solve the world's problem and leave the elephant in the middle of the room because that's how I'm programmed and not even tell you there's an elephant in the middle of the room. Because that's a programming of diplomacy. But there's a point in your life where you got to address and go, what the hell is this friggin' elephant doing in the middle of the room? Who put it there? Let's get this elephant out. We need the space. That's the time that we're living in. It's just calling it like it is.
0: Got to call it like it is. Because if you don't call it, it's always there. It's always lingering. It's always going to cloud your capacity to access the highest part of yourself.
1: Yeah. And I want to say one more thing about that. And this is why know thyself, believe in thyself, love thyself is so important. Because if I'm telling you that I'm charging you a million dollars a minute and it's not resonating, it's not going to happen. But if you feel my million dollars a minute, you're going to spend that million dollars without even blinking an eye. And so this is why the self-work is so important. The own, you and I know people, we all know people that you go, how the hell are they pulling that in? Because whatever they're doing, whoever they're resonating with, the frequency, you have to believe in what you're asking. If you don't, you're not going to get it. It's as simple as that. Mm. Yeah. And so if you're coming from a poverty consciousness, that's going to leak out when you speak to people. You know, like when people start to give you their story, etc. You're going, okay, I get what's happening here. And wow, this could be a whole discussion in and of itself, Tiffany. Because so much is tied up in the frequency and energy of money, you can tell a, it's a root chakra element again. You can tell so much about a person just by how they're navigating in that area. I often say, if a man is tight, you know, what? when I say tight, stingy, holds onto his purse, chances are his heart is pretty tight too. Not my, not interested. See ya. You
0: just made me think of this book. It's called The Big Leap by Gay Hendricks. He's a psychologist and um, he talks about the zone of genius. And for those of you listening who know me, I am obsessed with this concept, but it's basically four circles coming together in the middle to access your zone of genius. What you love to do, what you do for work that doesn't feel like work, Um, your capacity for abundance and satisfaction relative to time spent doing those things to access those feelings, and then your unique abilities and skill sets to be able to do what you do coming together in the middle. And he talks at length about how to get to that space, and he talks about money as well. And he says, money issues are never actually about money. It's never about that. It's always about the deeper core limiting belief that keeps you from actually tapping into that abundance within yourself that then can translate as money. So it's really interesting to hear you say that, yeah, underneath it, there's an energy, there's a frequency. And as we navigate ourselves into the future, there might be another sort of exchange that comes in the form of a different currency than what we're used to. That's really, yeah, I feel like that could be a whole other conversation that we can maybe revisit at another time. But with that, I would just love to sort of shift into what you have created during the post-pandemic reality that we're living in. Like, what is something that you are just, that gets you out of bed? I know you do a lot of things, but if you could just... Drop into the thing right now that really reflects where you're at and where your offering really meets the frequencies of the people that you're magnetizing and, and really embodying your purpose, your a key guy, your zone of genius that has sort of this highest impact on the people that you serve. What would you what would you share?
1: Hmm. Funny, I often ask my clients that what propels you out of bed in the morning? because obviously that's connected to our dharma, our purpose, and our passion. And really, it's seeing people shine. It's seeing people, you know, stepping into the fullest expression of their self, saying, I had this dream, I felt I couldn't realize this dream, as a result of the work that we've done together, I've actually done it. Because then that creates a ripple effect, you know, Um I was speaking to someone earlier on today, and and I one of the things I shared with her is, and it took me a while to recognize that not all of us are meant to harvest the field, to toil the field. Some of us are meant to go there and plant the seeds, and then others come in and have those seeds grow. I plant seeds. You plant seeds,
0: and... Along with planting seeds comes eventual transformation, which is where I'd like to shift our conversation now and to look at culture more broadly. And I'd love to bring in some Kyoto Williams uh, wisdom. So in an interview with Emergence Magazine, she talks a little bit more about radical dharma. I just want to read a little bit from that. She says, radical dharma asks you to look at histories that maybe you haven't acknowledged to look at experiences in your own life that you haven't acknowledged. Ways that things have affected how you show up in the world, whether you are open or whether you are more closed, whether you are more receptive or whether you are more narrow, whether you operate out of a location of fear and resistance to difference or whether you operate out of a location that is spacious and curious and open to difference. And want to understand how difference operates and why, in fact, difference feels like it's something that troubles you or makes you come a little bit undone. I mean, Mm. (laughs) how do you even put that into words? So just to let that sink in, in what ways, from where you, Nadine, sit, do you feel culture can really shift right now? especially right now, to break through, she says, our impoverished imaginations and hold more space for difference?
1: Um, wow. As I listen to you, I remember a discussion on, I think it was when I presented on Sfadi's platform, the question of what about the story we haven't been told? You know, all of us hear the story speaking from my history, my lineage, my context. The story that's known to everyone about me is the fact that I was a descendant of slaves. That's a known story. Who was I before I was a slave? The story that we know about most slave owners, um, colonizers, etc., is the story of the white man, the Caucasian. Who was that person before he became a slave owner? And what was happening for you? If we, This is the beauty of stepping back. Because there must be some trauma. What trauma would you have gone through that you would cognitively make me less than, make me less than a human so that you could power over me, implement a system upon me that is cruel beyond belief so that you would profit? It's a question. That's a big question. And so that's, that's, that to me, that's the coming undone. You know, I grew up where I heard about Christopher Columbus discovering Jamaica in 1494 or whenever it was. Who, Where was the world before Christopher Columbus? Why was Christopher Columbus important? When would I? I would be an adult when I took it upon myself to understand what it meant about the slave trade. I would be standing at a bathhouse in Mombasa in Kenya to feel the trauma of what it must have been like in those bathhouses before packing me like sardines and sailing me across the ocean. Why wasn't I taught that history? Because of trauma. So everything everything is revealed in the right space and time, and this is the right space and time, so let us become undone. That's the invitation. We have nothing else. We have nothing left to lose and everything to gain.
0: Yeah, I think she actually even said, we're coming to a point where we can't be in denial anymore. <laughs> I mean, the elephant in the room, right? Like the real shit. Sorry, I have to say it. And tying even the thread from earlier where you said, within the rage even though that's not really present for you right now, but it is certainly for me, and I know a lot of people, is this, I don't know what you want to call it, the transformation or the seed to, like, catalyze.
1: Get in touch with the rage, but do not burn yourself up in the rage. Because the rage is exhausting. If you get stuck in that rage, you cannot be in action. There's a place for the rage. Because the rage is what kind of wakes you up that you go, holy what the hell have I been doing? Where have I been living? But if you get pulled in by that, then you can't be in action. And that's the danger of all of the information that we're being fed. Because it, <laughs> the powers that be know exactly what they're doing. We're like puppets on a string. Yeah? So if you, what, what pulls, you got to know what, what jerks your puppet. And manage that. Otherwise, you're going to be like this. You're going to be exhausted and constantly on the defense and not in action. And that's a typical
0: experience of activists. They get burnt out. They need to rest. And actually, rest is very radical because our society is telling us to keep going, pushing, achieving, making more, getting promoted, all these patriarchal uh, values. And no wonder the people that are trying to fight the good fight are sick or or exhausted and burnt out. And so, you know, activism is a beautiful thing. There's so many ways you can show up as an activist in this world. And I would love to know for you, how has being in Bali, I mean, I know you've lived here for quite some time, but being in Bali during this time, COVID times, systems collapse times, really helped you build greater activism within yourself so that you can show up and do the things that you do. Maybe it could almost be framed as like a love letter to Bali. Like, how, like, what are you grateful to Bali for being your home and being the space where you can really do this work for yourself?
1: Mm. Well, you know, um, as I mentioned earlier, this is not my first time seeing Bali this way. Mm-hmm. And I actually knew it was coming because the direction in which Bali was heading it could not continue at the rate it was going. I could feel that something was coming in because because of the sacredness and the, the the magnetism of the land on which we live, anytime Bali gets out of balance, something sets it back deeply sacred land. I didn't know it would come in the way of a pandemic, you know, but anyway, there we have it. Um, I'm so grateful that at this particular time, I can actually be here. We can engage in these conversations. It's given me the space to deepen in my work, to get really clear about what it is that I want to be doing, how I want to show up and still be able to do this in a place that's healthy, where I'm surrounded by greenery, I'm living in a largely conscious community. It's still affordable enough that I can feed myself in a manner that I want to eat, et cetera, et cetera. And that you know, um, connecting to the God of our inner standing is in the ethos, it's in the fabric of every single human being on the, on this island. You know, it's, yeah.
0: All of that resonates a lot. And I you can really sort of see what resilience looks like when you wake up every day in a land that is primarily designed for tourism and you see the people, the natives of this land, still showing up, still doing their prayers, still
1: smiling showing up with such grace yeah and that is really very humbling for me um i last week i had um lunch with a friend down in kota at a very established restaurant and we were the only two people in the restaurant on a friday afternoon and the quality of the service didn't diminish as a result that's grace mm. yeah Mm. And for that, that, that's what Bali has taught me. Thank you for asking me that question because it's kind of brought it front and center.
0: Mm. Yeah, Grace, and I would love—I mean, I could talk to you for hours, Nadine, but I would just love to close with knowing, being curious about one message or question that you can leave our audience today that they can reflect on beyond this
1: conversation. Hmm. One message or question. Are you living in alignment with your highest self? And if not, why not? Beautiful. Integrity. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Can you say it one more time?
1: Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Are you living in alignment with your highest self? And if not, why not? That's really the gift of this time, you know. That's really the gift that coronavirus has brought to us.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Straighten okay. up and fly right. Yeah. Oh <sighs> wow, I'm buzzing. How do you feel? <laughs> Good. I enjoyed that. Um, I love the way you ask questions and as you said, we could kind of go on forever. There's so many different ways. So thank you. Because like I said, you can only carry out the interview you have if you've spent some time looking at yourself, looking at the work and looking at what you want to share. So thank you. Thank you so
0: much, Nadine. And for those of you listening, if you feel moved, uplifted, in curiosity, shifting in some way that you can't fully articulate with the logical mind, you're not alone. (laughs) (laughs) You are not. (laughs) And um, please, yes, if this resonated with you, um, please subscribe, give a rating, review. We just really want to amplify these stories of diversity um, to really connect on this level so thank you so much for listening
1: thank you so much nadine thank you so much thank you i enjoyed this immensely and uh
0: yeah and we will be back next week so stay tuned the Alt alt normal this show is produced by Resonance, the creative practice of dig, seed, grow. If you enjoyed this conversation, please show us the love. You can subscribe, share, or leave a review. We'd be so grateful to help us amplify these stories far and wide. Thanks so much.